Well, hi, kids, and welcome to episode 75 of the Planet LP podcast. I'm Ted Asregadu. When I was in graduate school decades ago, I took a seminar with a professor who wanted us to write a research paper that had elements of history, sociology, and even psychology. The idea was to frame the project around turning points in our subject's life. We were to conduct four in-depth interviews with a person and locate larger historical events that were happening in an effort to see how those larger historical events intersected with the personal turning points in our subject's life. Deep stuff, but that's graduate school. I was thinking about a big turning point in my life. And that year was 1981. Historically, Ronald Reagan was inaugurated as president of the United States. A little bit more personally, my family moved. I started a new high school. 1981, specifically June 5th, 1981, was a turning point for me. That was when I experienced, albeit with a little enhancement from a contact high in a venue I was in, the music of a band that I knew very little about. Setting the scene for a moment, I'm at the Oakland Arena Coliseum in Oakland, California. The lights go down. And, well, this is kind of what it sounded like. Little did I know that experiencing that band live would be a turning point in my life. Going forward, the band Rush would be a musical entity that I stayed connected to in a way that went beyond the albums and into seven nonfiction books that their lyricist and drummer, Neil Peart, wrote. To even learning how to play drums myself in my 30s, not because I wanted to play like Peart, but because it was something that I really wanted to do since I was in high school. And I figured I might as well try and see if I could do it. Some of the bicycling I've done in my life have made me aware that instead of focusing only on the road ahead, it's okay to stop, look around, take some pictures, and take in the environment of where you are with the knowledge that you may never travel on this stretch of road or see these landscapes again. Maybe those are the kind of things a band like Rush can help inspire or motivate creative endeavors, adventure travel, intellectual explorations. Not many bands can do that, but for me, Rush has. Sadly, that band no longer exists, but its fans can't seem to let go. Two such fans are my guests on the podcast. They are Steve and Jerry from the Something for Nothing podcast. We're going to do some deep talk about the band Rush and have some fun ranking the last songs that's on each of Rush's 19 studio albums. Before we get to my guests, I just wanted to note that if you'd like to connect with Planet LP on the social channels, just search for us on Facebook, Groupie, Instagram, and Twitter. If you're a band, artist, or an author who writes about music and would like to be on the podcast to talk about your work, email me at ted at planetlp.com. And since you're listening to this, you probably already know how to get the Planet LP podcast on your favorite app, but please don't keep this podcast a secret. If you could recommend Planet LP to a friend, family member, or coworker, 
you know, those people who are passionate about music in your life, I would really appreciate the boost. Okay, that's enough business for now. (laughs) Time to dive into the deep end with some deep rush talk with Jerry and Steve from the Something for Nothing podcast. Steve is one half of the Something for Nothing podcast, like me. Steve is a radio guy, as you'll hear when he starts talking. Unlike me, Steve is still in radio, while I've moved on to being a government man. Welcome, Steve, to the planet. Thanks, Ted. Appreciate it. Yeah, Jerry is a writer-editor in, in a city in the East Coast, <laughs> undisclosed location. <laughs> he is the other half of the Something for Nothing podcast, and this is a podcast that I listened to starting right around the lockdown phase of the pandemic. One thing that I noticed is that Jerry was always very good about digging deep into the lyrics and coming away with some sort of insightful analysis on Neil Peart's lyrics. Hiya, Jerry. Welcome to the Planet LP podcast. Hi, Ted. Thanks for uh, inviting both of us. You could have just oh, invited great. Steve, but you invited I, I, both of us. <laughs> well, then it would have been two radio guys trying to out-radio <laughs> each other, you know? I mean, it's nice to have, have a little balance in the mix. That's always good. It's really great to have both of you on the podcast. As you know, I've been a fan of your podcast for a long time. I was honored to be a guest on the podcast. Now, You're in my house where you are an honored guest here. I know we've had some delays due to some scheduling conflicts, but we finally made it happen. As I noted in my introduction, your podcast is something for nothing. It's still available on most podcasting platforms, but after 175 episodes, you stopped recording your podcast. So why the heck did you guys stop? Steve, first. Well, uh, I think it's a two-pronged reason. First of all, we're kind of running out of stuff to talk about. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, we did 175 episodes and we pretty much mined everything there is to mine about Rush. Don't you agree, Jer? Um, Yeah, there are other things to mine, but perhaps the the ore is getting a little thin in places. So maybe we, uh, you know, decided to just stop before we had a hard time finding things and people to talk about. So you did want to overstay your welcome as it were. It just felt, it felt like it was, it was the right time to just stop. Yeah. It felt right, Ted. And also just life got in the way a little bit, took a lot of time to produce the podcast. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it was just getting to the point where it was just too much for me to do. We may do an episode or two here and there down Mm -hmm. the road, but for now we're taking a break. Well-deserved. I mean, you guys were it didn't seem like you ever took a break of that 175 episode arc. I mean, every, every week I got a new episode. It's like, do these guys even sleep? I mean, they don't take any vacations. <laughs> I mean, they must have really front loaded these episodes because man, they just keep coming with great regularity. It was, it was for a listener like me. I loved it. You know, I, I would either listen to you guys in the car while I was going to work, or if I was taking a jog or a walk or on my bike, I'd have one earbud in. It wasn't great on a bike because of the wind, so often I wouldn't do that. But uh, <laughs> you guys were my you guys were my traveling companions, and I got so used to listening to you every week that when you finally hung it up, I was like, now who am I going to listen to now? I mean, I listen to a lot of podcasts, but <laughs> yours was one of my favorites, and I'm all like, Man, I feel like it's always nice to have every week. I get to hang out with Jerry and Steve for a good hour or so. And they always have interesting guests, insightful things to say. And there was, I'm not going to lie, there was a sense of loss on my end. I was just like, 
Man, I, I mean, I've tried other Rush podcasts, but I kept thinking that yours was always, to me, the best, the best produced, most interesting. I, I guess because, Steve, because of your radio background, and I know you don't want to get too deep into your radio background, but you brought a sense of conversation to the podcast that kept things moving forward in a way. And Jerry, you were this kind of, uh, you're this every guy, but not just an every guy, but you weren't a radio guy. So it wasn't like two radio guys going at it. And, you know, I, my podcast at one point, I was doing it with a good friend of mine who's who's still in radio. He's a morning show host. And my wife had said one point, it says, it sounds a bit like a radio show, like what you guys are doing. It doesn't sound so much like a conversation. And I said, oh, because we're just goofing off too much. And she goes, yeah, a little bit. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but well, I never Steve always kept us on guys. track. Yeah. He did. He, yeah, I can tell. Steve like, always Steve... kept us on track, even like with the scheduling and the when the shows were coming out and in the episodes themselves. He had a good way of, I don't know, pointing me in the right direction because I usually have no direction when I speak. So. so you said some personal things got in the way. I mean, obviously, family commitments are huge. If you're doing a podcast and you're home because of a pandemic and you can work remotely, that's one thing. But then when you get the ring, 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 hey, we're all returning to the office, you're like, oh, <laughs> I've got this podcast yeah. I've been doing every week. Oh, boy, oh, boy. Yeah, that's really when it started to hit home that it was taking a lot of my time. When I went back to work, I was like, wait a minute, when the heck am I going to do all this? You know, right. so and I did it for a while for over a year and it just got to be too much. That's all. No, I had to throttle back when I left radio and I started working in an office again. So I used to do this podcast every week. And then I went to roughly twice twice a month. Sometimes I'm, I'm really ambitious and I, I rise to that level of ambition. I do three episodes a month, but it's mostly two a month. That's what I can handle. Is what, that's what I have the bandwidth for. I have some long-term listeners who say, I wish you were doing this every week because I really do enjoy it. And as a listener of your podcast, I can understand that. You get used to a voice. You get used to your routine of listening to a podcast and you're spending time with somebody who's in your ears. And it's a kind of an intimate experience in, in a sense that this person is talking to you or with you and you're having you're kind of having a mental conversation with them. And you grow to have a bit of a listener bond with a podcast. And, and most of the podcasts that I listen to, they're very well, most of them are pretty, they got money behind them, you know, the New York Times or Rolling Stone or whatever. So these people are, are pros, but you're a pro, Steve. Jerry, you're a pro on the writing side, but you were never pro podcasters. You never had money behind you that said, you know, hey, you're going to start like doing ads for stamps.com now or something. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's what I liked about it is that it felt very genuine. Well, thank you, Tim. Yeah, well, we it was, appreciate it. Yeah, we do appreciate it. And it was great to hear from people who felt the same way about our podcast that Steve and I feel about our favorite podcasts. Like you mm -hmm. said, having someone in your ear all the time, you just get used to, you know, having that weekly conversation, one-sided as it may be. Mm hmm with someone and that's how people felt about our show and that's really what kept us going for so long yeah you guys had some real super fans and i could tell when they came on the pod that they were genuinely thrilled to be on so that's why you stopped so why did you start what made you want to start this podcast well jerry and i were on a trip to denver we went out to to red rocks 
And we were driving to Utah to go to, where did we go? Arches National Park, Jar. Is that where we went? Yep. Yep. And we were just talking about how we always wanted to do a podcast. It'd be fun to do a podcast. And we had no idea what we could do a podcast about. And then later on the trip, we were just talking about Rush for an hour, like we always do. And it was one of those Seinfeld moments where we said to each other, this is it. This is the show. <laughs> right. Because I think we were listening to Grace Under Pressure. Well, we were listening to Kid Gloves. Kid Gloves came on. And I was telling Steve what Kid Gloves were. Like they were an actual thing, you know, gloves mm -hmm. that were made from the soft skin of a baby lamb or whatever. And he didn't he didn't know that. So we were, I just started talking about that. And then we both were just like, hey, why don't we just do this? Why don't we just talk about stupid stuff about Rush? And there you go. But it wasn't stupid stuff. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> it then turned out not to be stupid stuff. Right, exactly. The show about nothing that turned out not to be about nothing. So the title, Something for Nothing, obviously is a Rush song. But is it really a Seinfeld moment? Was it a Seinfeld moment about, it's a show about nothing. We should call it Something for Nothing. It's about Rush. And we'll talk about Rush. And it'll be something but for some people it'll be nothing i don't know how did this how did you how did you decide on the title you know the title i think we just couldn't come up with anything good so we settled on something for nothing <laughs> mm -hmm. afterwards we came up with so many better names like you know the podcast of lamneth would have been great you uh, know? Yeah, yeah that would have been great yeah we tried a lot of like rush puns or something mm -hmm. we just couldn't come up with anything and something for nothing seemed fitting because we were doing something for nothing. You know what I mean? For no reason whatsoever. Yeah. And you weren't getting paid for it either. So <laughs> we weren't getting paid for it. Exactly. Right. That, that's what I thought it was because you guys never took any advertising. It was never a, a point where you say, well, let me tell you about my cotton shirt or whatever I need to <laughs> for <laughs> right. 60 seconds. You know, <laughs> I've often thought about doing advertising here on this podcast, but if I were to do it, I would do it with a product or a service that I really thought would fit with a music podcast, that it wouldn't just be suddenly, I said stamps.com before, but I'll say it again, <laughs> something like stamps.com. I mean, because it's like, it feels like a throwaway in a way. I'd rather it be like, okay, these are music fans than this product or services for music fans. That would be the only way I would do it. But I haven't reached and that plus point we were, where advertisers are reaching out. So. And plus, what we're doing basically is a 45-minute commercial for Rush every week. Yeah, so. yeah. So they they could have paid you. you, know, you they sure gotta, could have, but yeah, <laughs> they've paid us in, in dividends like you wouldn't believe all of it over the years. So it's fine yeah. by me. So in all the time that I was listening to your podcast, and I've listened to the, all 175 episodes, you often had talked about your desire to – interview the guys from Rush, mostly Getty and Alex. By the time that Neil passed away, obviously that was not possible, but you started your podcast in 2019, correct? Yes. Okay. So Neil Peart was still alive, obviously not doing well, but did you ever get close to landing an interview with Getty or Alex? We never really reached out, you know, because it was never our intention to get close to the band. Do you know what I mean? We weren't doing this just so we could talk to Getty or Alex or Neil. We just did it because we wanted to do it and we love Rush. So there was never any kind of any kind of idea that we would leverage anything about the show and its popularity to try and get closer to the band, if that mm -hmm. makes any sense. So we've never really even tried. 
If their management company had reached out to you and said, hey, we've been listening to some of the episodes. We think that uh, we could possibly get Alex on for you to talk about new signature guitar that he has or just to talk a little bit about Rush, but we're, we're trying to do a promotional push on this. I mean, that would have been something for something, right? Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. that would have been amazing. Yeah. And, and we would have done it, but the thing we were always going for was professionalism, I suppose. Mm-hmm. We would interview them and talk to them, not so much as as like uh, Chris Farley fans. You know, he had that, that skit <laughs> on SNL. But, you know, we would talk to them as if we were talking to them, like we talked to any of our guests. Yeah. Can you imagine Chris Farley interviewing Neil Peart? You once wrote that I can't <laughs> pretend a stranger is a long-awaited friend. Yeah, I wrote that. Is that true? <laughs> right. <laughs> You're like, now it is. It is. So I often think about the big get. If I was able to sit down with somebody who uh, was a musical hero of mine, and I think of, you know, certainly Alex and Getty are in that on that list, but one person I've always thought about talking to that I've always wanted to talk to is Mark Knopfler. I'm a big Dire Straits Mm. fan. The Dire Straits albums from making movies onward, well, cresting with brothers in arms, have meant so much to me that I would just love to sit down and talk about the albums themselves, how they were produced. That's probably what I would like to talk about with Getty and Alex. I would like to know more about what went into, say, how Getty comes up with his parts, not just the bass parts, but his vocal parts, how he hears the music in his head, because he's very melodic. And you look at the words that Neil writes, and they don't automatically lend themselves to like being melodic lyrics mm-hmm. uh, often. And But what Getty does with those lyrics, it's like, it's pretty magical. You know, like, how do you do that, man? What's your secret sauce? I wouldn't ask it like that, but I would ask, I would want to have a conversation about those sort of things. Not so much about why are you guys so awesome, but how did you come up with these bass parts? Like, were you jamming on something? Was this just some riff that was going in your head and you just started expressing it on the guitar? Were you just noodling around one day and Alex said, do that again? That sounded really good. And it's just serendipity. It's just something that's a happy accident, as it were. It's interesting that you guys never really tried to get that. And I've tried to get some other uh, notable folks on the podcast. And, you know, at, at one point I thought, you know what, what's the point? I mean, these guys have been asked so many questions this way and that way. So now I can, I tend to concentrate on up and coming bands. So my interviews are usually with up, up and coming bands or those almost famous bands that they were sort of adjacent to a lot of famous people and they know a lot of them, but they just never quite hit. So that's kind of where my focus is on this podcast at times. I guess you have to explain as a Rush fan to other people who are not Rush fans is the lasting appeal. What is it that makes Rush such a a band that, that evokes such passion in its fans? So First of all, they were relatable. They were just regular guys, just like us, regular geeky dudes. Mm-hmm. And they always did it their way. They did things the way they wanted to. And if fans liked it, that was fine. If fans didn't like it, that was fine. Mm-hmm. I respect that. The third thing would be the musicianship. They were impeccable musicians, all three of them. Getty was an amazing vocalist. 
And the fourth thing I would say is that they're unique. There never was and never will be a band like Rush. Yeah, I feel the same way, especially about that last one. There are some bands that they strike a chord because they aren't like every other band. There are some bands that strike a chord because they sound like other bands. Mm-hmm. And you can relate to them right away because they have that kind of sound. But Rush has never been, you've never been able to put them in with a sound other than their own. And I think it was it was Billy Corgan in the Beyond the Lighted Stage documentary. He asked, at some point, somebody's going to have to answer the question, you know, why is Rush here? How, how, did, how did Rush become Rush? You know, like people have talked about the Rolling Stones for a million years and people have talked about uh, Led Zeppelin. They've been overanalyzed, but no one's really taken the time to figure out why Rush is as big as they are still. They're still huge. We still, I'm still getting emails from people who are listening to our podcast because they just discovered Rush. You know what I mean? People first hear Rush, they usually become monomaniacal about them and they Google, you know, all the information they can and somehow our podcast comes up. So I'm still getting emails from people saying that, you know, I just started listening to Rush last month. I can't believe there's a podcast about it. Like they're just surprised that so many other people love Rush. And it's just, I'm really not sure why they resonate so well, but I think it has to do with the fact that when you hear them, you're like, what? I've never heard anything like that. It's kind of like the doors, you know, I love the doors. There's never been another band like the doors. There's never been another band that sounds like the doors. No one's even tried to sound like the doors because maybe they think it's futile. I feel the same way about rush. Obviously rush is a bigger band than I think the doors are, but no one tries to be like rush. Because I, I think they realize that they shouldn't, they can't, whatever ineffable quality Rush has to their music, it's just something that no one else can really touch. Even though the band effectively broke up in 2015, and it's now 2023, but yet Rush as a entity that still has product that they're putting out. I mean, yes, their anniversary albums that they're remastered and packaged and made a super deluxe edition and things like that. And they, they cost a pretty penny. If you get the the big one, all the discs and all the artwork and everything signals just came out for uh, the, its 40th anniversary release. I don't think the appetite for Rush's music in product form. And I'm talking about these big releases like these super deluxe edition CDs and LP slash vinyl, that hasn't waned. I get the feeling that they're putting this stuff out there because the fan base is going to buy it. Rush fans are very much like zealots. They're very, very passionate about the band and they don't seem to lack for money at times because some of these products <laughs> are kind of expensive. <laughs> Well, I think it's as the you know as the the Rush fan base gets older, I think we have a little more disposable income. I think that's mm-hmm. what they're targeting. I don't know if there are many you know eighteen, nineteen year old Rush fans who are buying the four hundred dollar moving pictures box set. In another life, I used to be a, a college professor, and I had some students who were big fans of uh, classic rock. Right before the R forty tour, I was teaching a class and. One of my students found out that, you know, I was a big music fan and 
he asked me, you know, what are your some of your favorite bands? And I, I said, you know, I'm really excited because one of my favorite bands, Rush, is coming for what I believe is going to be their final tour. And he said, I'm going to that. And he was 18 years old. And I said, <laughs> Wow. I said, How did you how did you find out about Rush? He says, Oh, my dad. He says, My dad, you know, when I was a little boy, I was listening to Rush music. So I he used to take me to concerts. I think they're great. I, I just I hope they keep touring after this. He said, But you're right. I bet this is their final tour. I said, Do you have other friends who like this? type of music, you know, just rush, but maybe from that era of progressive rock and and hard rock. He said, yeah, uh, a good chunk of my uh, friends, we really like that era. Yes, Rush, Pink Floyd. I said, does it feel like dad's LPs to you or does it feel new? (laughs) And uh, he said, well, with Rush, they're they're still, you know, releasing new music, so it feels new. But with Pink Floyd and yes, because they're not releasing anything new – of course, these albums they've heard up, you know, for for years. But, but there was there are fans that, you know, maybe small that they are, were younger back in 2015 or 18 years old, 18, 19 years old, and that kind of really surprised me because I really thought that this this type of music was sort of generational. That it, you know, whatever you drop down on the face of the earth, this is kind of your soundtrack. And then once you once you move on from this plane of existence, maybe that music's not going to be so embraced, but it doesn't seem to be the case for Rush. At least not what I'm seeing. (laughs) And it's not scientific. It's just sort of anecdotal. I think it's because there are so many different eras to Rush. The early stuff is almost metal, right? The first album is kind of bluesy. The next stuff is kind of metal. Then the other, then then you move towards the proggy stuff. And then you get to more of the radio-friendly stuff. And then you get to the keyboard stuff. They cross so many different types of music while still keeping the core of who they are. Mm-hmm. So you can. there are so many different things to choose from. I, I don't like to pick on ACDC because I love ACDC. But if you know, ACDC albums are basically all the same. Do you know what I mean? They, they all sound the same. <laughs> Which is not, yeah. which is fine because they're ACDC, but a band like Rush, they were around for 40 years. They had so many different types of albums. They were never a legacy band because they were constantly putting out great material. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just, um, I mean, if you got into a band for the first time, like you're like, oh, I love this song. I wonder if this band has any other songs that are as good as this. And then you check out their discography and you find out they have 19 studio albums. <laughs> you're in heaven you've hit the jackpot now you can really right explore. you hit the jackpot on uh, your favorite band the amazing so I, thing is that 18 year old fans that we run into they love rush's entire catalog yeah. the old school people they only like the 70s stuff when signals came out they dropped off yeah, yeah but these young kids they love it all and i think it's great my daughter, who is now in her mid-20s, she grew up listening to a lot of Rush music. Surprise, surprise. And I asked her, I said, which era do you like of, of Rush? And she said, I'm going to go with the, with the classic Getty sound. I, I like hmm. the early albums. I just like the way he really just belts it out and kind of screeches. I said, so what, what is your least favorite era? She said, I didn't like the synth stuff. Um, I mean, mm. it's okay, but the, the 80s stuff, I, I like the newer stuff is good, but I just love 
things like him screaming out anthem and 2112 it's just something about it that it's a unique voice that nobody else really has she says i know that led zeppelin has a singer who's got a high voice and he tends to screech but he doesn't she said and you've always said that rush gets unfairly compared to led zeppelin often i don't hear it i don't hear robert plant and getty lee in any similar sense other than they're both in hard rock bands that was it she sounds like an old soul like in all the 70s stuff she did. She did. She, I took her to the R40 tour. She really enjoyed it. She really thought it was, uh, and I've taken her to other tours too, but I told her, I said, this is it. You got to come with me. This is the last time they're going <laughs> to play. And she's all like, how do you know? I said, I just have this feeling. She says, but you've been saying that for every tour. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, I, I gotta, I'm going to be right once, right? Right. So I guess I was, I was right at that time. So you guys came to Rush in the eighties, you didn't, you didn't sort of discover them in their seventies era incarnation until this is probably the, I'm going to guess the early to mid eighties is when you came to them. Yeah. I discovered them earlier than Jerry did. I would say around 1982, I joined Columbia house Mm -hmm. and I got moving pictures and I got signals and I loved them, but I didn't become a huge, huge rush fan until the same time Jerry did when we saw them on the Power Windows tour, we went to see them in 1986. And after that show, we were just head over heels from then on. I failed to mention that at the beginning of your podcast, anytime you had a guest on, you would ask them their Rush origin story. So this is actually Steve's Rush origin story, which I've heard before, but Planet LP listeners may not have. So what made you want to go to the Power Windows tour? What was it? Just like, this might be fun or? Yeah. I mean, I knew Rush. Uh, The drummer in my band was a huge Rush fan. And Mm -hmm. we decided to both go see Rush. And we invited a friend of ours to go with us who was also into Rush. And we had no one to drive us. So, you know, I was close. How old old were you in 85? 86. I guess I I would have been 16, I guess. Right. No license to drive yet, huh? Right. And Jerry's about a year older than me and he had his license and he was a good friend of mine. And I said, Jer, what do you think? You want to drive us to the show? And Jerry said, sure. Yeah, I would go to any show. So I was like, yeah, let's go to the show. Do you remember how much you paid for tickets? 10 bucks, I think. Something like that. I think it was, I think it was 1550. I think that's the, that was the number on the ticket. It might've been 1250. It and was how great- close how close were you to the stage? We were on the side of the stage. So we had tickets that said side of the stage right on mm-hmm. the tickets. But it turned out to be the best thing because we were so close to Neil. We got to see everything. It was incredible. Yeah. We were Alex's side. Okay. So he was coming over and making his goofy faces all the time. And like I had never heard, I mean, I think I probably heard Tom Sawyer but I had never heard anything. And I loved every song for the entire night from note one until the end. It was the best concert I've ever seen. Wow. And so Jerry, uh, your Rush origin story is around the time of Steve's or did you know about the band? It's, it's it, that that is your Rush origin? That's, that's, my, that's your Rush origin story right there. Yeah. If I were a comic book hero, I would have been hit by lightning or something because it was just that 
moment, those that hour and a half or however long it was, that was that was my origin story. I walked in a normal person and I walked out a rush fanatic. <laughs> now that you guys have been, this is 1986, you come out, you're both now newly anointed into the Church of Rush and uh, you're all deacons in there. You have to know that the band was very niche and people had either a pretty good opinion about Rush or a not so good opinion about Rush. I've had to weather the Rush criticism for decades. Did you have to go through that as well? How, how did you defend yourself against people saying, oh man, Rush sucks or they're horrible or Getty Lee's so pretentious in the way he writes the lyrics. I remember I hear that over and over. And I'm like, yeah, but he doesn't want, he's not the one that writes the lyrics. And they're like, that's even worse. Exactly. <laughs> you know, I never really tried to defend myself. I never thought I had to convince anybody. I just felt like I was in an exclusive club of people who got it. You know, either you get it or you don't get it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I'm happy just to be in that club with the few people that are in it and the heck with everybody else. There you go. How about you, Jerry? Well, yeah, I mean, at the very beginning in, you know, 86 to like 89 or something like that, it was, I didn't really, I didn't really care what anybody thought. You know, I had a rush, I had a denim jacket with a rush patch on the back. You know what I mean? I was, you know, I was out of the closet as a rush fan. Yeah. But when I got to college, there was definitely a feeling then Rush were, couldn't be any less cool if they tried. And it's, it seemed to everyone as if they were trying. There were so many yes. cool bands in the early 90s that being a Rush fan, I, I didn't really talk about it that much because there was, so, you know, there was other music to talk about. And I certainly was never going to convince a Jane's Addiction fan to listen to Power Windows. Do you know what I mean? It just never was, it was never going to happen. So I yeah. didn't even, even try. I have weathered so much criticism for my love of Rush, whether it's uh, when I was in my, I'm in my 50s now, but when I was in my 40s and people would sort of tease me about, man, why are you hanging on with that dinosaur band or Getty Lee's voice? How can you stand that? Their songs sound all the same. And I'm like, actually, they don't. Yeah, actually, they don't. <laughs> or, yeah, I never really got into their music. Did they ever have any hits? And I said, well, I guess if you can call New World Man a hit, it charted right. top 20, went to number, I think, 21 on the top 40. And they're like, I never heard. I don't know. I don't know that song. I really don't. And until that movie, <laughs> I Love You Man, came out, I think that that was kind of the sea change in a way. The documentary Beyond the Lighted Stage, but also I Love You Man. I was at work one day and I didn't, I wasn't paying attention to the fact that this movie had come out. And one of my friends at work, we're still friends to this day. She was the office manager and she says, Hey, Teddy, have you seen, I love you man yet? And I said, um, no, no, it's about you. And I said, (laughs) I said, what are you talking about? She says, it's about a guy who's most of his friends are girls, which is true. And he loves Rush. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> I said, I got to see this. She said, I said, who's in it? She goes, Paul Rudd. I said, oh, I'm definitely going. She said, and Rush is in it too. She said, I, I'm watching this thing. I'm, I bet Ted's seen this already. And uh, I said, nope, I haven't. So she says, good. I turned you on to something new that, you know, I always thought that you were always like, I, I know what new movies are coming out and this and that. But for, there was some reason, I just was not paying attention to any new releases or anything. So in all the years you've seen Rush, 
guys, what's the one thing that's changed about the band over the decades that you can find a marker? Like you could say, yeah, there's kind of a rush sound that doesn't really change as a core rush sound, but then there's things that do change over the the decades. I first got into rush during the the keyboard years, power windows, hold your fire. I think when they came back from their hiatus with vapor trails and they started plugging back in, you know what I mean? Like Alex was front and center again. They became again, like a hard rocking band. So the concerts felt different because they always seemed to play older songs in almost like the style of the album they were currently touring. If you listen mm. to versions of different songs, they they sound different because, you know, Alex has, you know, whatever setup he has and same with Getty. And of course, Neil's drums were ever growing. So I think over time, I don't want to say they got better sounding, but they kind of got better sounding. Do you know what I mean? Kind of coming full circle rock wise. You know, I just, I just loved always hearing the evolution of that sound. They were always evolving. Over the years, they evolved with the times. They evolved with their own tastes. I think they got better. I would say they did get better. Mm -hmm. By the final album, Clockwork Angels was one of their best albums, probably in the yeah. top five for me. I agree. And how many bands can you say that about, Ted? When they put out their final album, it was one of their best. I can't think of another band. I, I can't either. And I think about some of these late career releases, you know, U2, Songs of Innocence, and even their re-records. And there's a sense that, is there much gas left in the tank for U2? Rolling Stones, they just, they don't really release new music anymore, but they're still a band. Right. They just tour. Uh, yeah. The Who, you know, back in 2019, they released that album creatively titled Who. And it had a couple good songs on it. But it didn't feel like, well, this is a this is a band that has got something to say. Whereas Rush, when they released Clockwork Angels, I'm all like, holy shit, these guys really have <laughs> hit it out of the park, man. I mean, it just yeah. got better. It was better than Snakes and Arrows, and it was better than Vapor Trails. And I know that you know, the hiatus, the dark period, coming back from that was difficult for them. But I really felt like man, they really hit their stride on this. And it, it was hard to believe that here's a band that had been together for 40 years and they're creating this kind of music. It sounded incredibly potent, mature, and just like, I hope they keep going with this because they are just firing on all cylinders, but it was not to be. But what an album to go out on, right? I mean, it's just like, man, it was so good. And I, I really, really enjoyed, uh, I still listen to it this day. It's probably one of the albums I listened to the most in terms of rotation of of rush albums so because i really enjoy the production on it and and the songwriting is is really really solid lyrically and musically yeah well that's one of the things about rush that's different from a lot of bands too is you get from some of these older legacy bands you get the feeling that the new album is just an excuse to tour mm -hmm. whereas rush didn't do that i mean they they played so many songs from their new album and nobody minded they always did that. They played a lot of songs from whatever album they were actually touring on. And nobody right. minded because they loved those songs as much as they loved, you know, the stuff from the 70s. The three of us have gone to enough concerts to know when they say, 
The band says, and this one's from our new album that a lot of people get up and head to the beer line. Yep. You know, they're right. just gone. But here was Rush on the Clockwork Angels tour. The second half of the set was Clockwork Angels. Not yeah. every song, but almost every song. A good chunk of the album was played. I know. And I was disappointed that they didn't play a couple songs. I'm like, why don't they just yeah. play that song too? Which yeah, is ne- exactly. never happens with a band that's been around for 40 years or whatever. And it just seemed like the fans were just as thrilled to hear that as they were the kind of the 80s retrospective that they did in the first set, which was a lot of fun to hear yep. a lot of those deeper cuts. And then it just got very fresh. And they had the fact that they had their Clockwork Angels string ensemble was a, was a nice added mm-hmm. layer to it. It really brought something to the songs. They genuinely seemed a lot happier playing with that ensemble. I think I saw Neil really smiling through that whole thing, or at least when I saw them in San yeah. Jose. I thought, wow, this, uh, we're having a good time. Before we get into our rank order of the last song on each Rush album, I'm going to sort of close out since we're talking about albums. And if there was one album that you could give to somebody and say, you want to know why I love Rush? Here, listen to this. Which album would that be? Well, it has to be Moving Pictures, doesn't it? I, I'm going to guess Jerry's going to say the same thing. I mean, Moving Pictures is just perfection from beginning to end. Seven incredible songs, Rush at its peak. If you're going to introduce somebody to Rush, you've got to hand them Moving Pictures, I think. Okay. What do you think, Jerry? Yeah, exactly. You're going to go with it's Moving Pictures. pictures. See, moving I pictures was all the album day. before for some reason. I just think that Permanent Waves, <laughs> to me, has the right combination of older rush because they've got natural science at the end, which is this is sort of this epic ending. And also these sort of radio compact radio friendly songs like, you know, the spirit of radio and free will. And then they have entree new and different strings. And it it just gives a sense of, and I can feel like that this is sort of rushed through the eras. Uh, You can tell they're moving more towards the, the eighties, with their exploration of synth and the songs are a little bit, or they're definitely more compact, but to me, permanent waves is sort of that album that shows this band in in a serious transition from what came before, but they're not completely jettisoning the past, but they still have some of that that's coming from the seventies into that album. So that would be my record here. Listen to permanent waves. (laughs) You can't Ted go wrong know, there either. Ted doesn't know what he's talking about. Here, listen to moving pictures. <laughs> <laughs> How about both? You know, right. Yeah, yeah. Right. They're only like 40 minutes long. So yeah, you can take 80 minutes and enjoy that. If they don't like either of those, you could be like, here, listen to this one. It sounds completely different. If you don't like <laughs> exactly. that one, listen to this one. It sounds completely different. Yeah. Can you imagine saying, I'm going to sit you down and listen, you're going to listen to 2112 and then I'm going to play you Grace Under Pressure and- do you think this is the same band? <laughs> right. you know, you'd be like, no, this is totally different band. But that's right. Rush, right? And that's why we love them. Alrighty, now for the fun stuff. Not that that wasn't fun in the previous segment, but what we're going to do in this segment is we're going to take all 19 songs from their studio albums, the last song on each album, and we're going to rank order them. We're going to take them in blocks of 15. Sorry, blocks of five. <laughs> That's ambitious. Boy, they, they have more than 19 <laughs> Okay, math was never my strong suit, and I'll do a Chevy Chase reference where 
uh, it was my understanding there was to be no math on this program. <laughs> so we'll, we'll go with blocks of five, but then the last four songs we'll do four, three, two, and then we'll go round Robin on number one. I hope everybody can follow that. So with block one, Steve, you are up. What is your first uh, block of songs out of the 19? Well, first of all, I have to say that this was one of the most difficult things I've ever had to do as far as ranking songs. Don't, don't you guys think this was difficult? It was difficult. (laughs) I mean, there are so many great album enders. Rush was so good at choosing the album track listing and picking the perfect song to end every record. Mm -hmm. And so this was tough. So I've got 19 through 15. The bottom five for me was easier. I went with You Bet Your Life is number 19 off Roll the Bones. Not one of their strongest, in my Mm -hmm. opinion, but still a good song. But, you know, something's got to be 19. Sure. Carve Away the Stone from Test for Echo is number 18 for me. Everyday Glory from Counterparts. Great song, but there were 16 others that were better, in my opinion. And uh, We Hold On, number 16 from Snakes and Arrows. And one of Jerry's favorites, Countdown from Signals, is my number 15. These five probably not the strongest enders for me, at least. Okay. Jerry, is yours radically different? No, no. Mine is almost exactly exactly the the same. same. Just in a slightly different order. (laughs) Yeah. Almost exactly. So at number 19, I have You Bet Your Life. Roll the Bones for me is probably the album that has really gone down in my estimation over the years i loved hmm. it when it first came out but it slowly over the years became one of my least favorite albums not exactly sure why 18's carve away the stone test for echo 17 is countdown i'm on record as saying that i really did not like countdown all that much and i still don't like it all that much although i've heard from a lot of people telling me how wrong i am at 16 i have out of the cradle which is on Vapor Trails. And 15 is Everyday Glory from Counterparts. Okay. And Everyday Glory would have been lower if not for the final verse of the song, which is one of the best things that I think Neil has ever written. Can you remind us what that final verse is? I knew you were going to ask me that. <laughs> I have it. I, and I have I hope it. you have it. Right. No, I, <laughs> no, I do. It says... If the future's looking dark, we're the ones who have to shine. If there's no one in control, we're the ones who draw the line. Though we live in trying times, we're the ones who have to try. Though we know that time has wings, we're the ones who have to fly. It's beautiful. That's one of the best things that Neil's ever written, but I just don't like the rest of the song. So if it weren't for that, the song would have been probably number 19 or so. Interesting. Okay. Well, I'm going to piss you guys off because I'm, I'm probably <laughs> going to be pick, picking songs that you guys are like, hey, those are higher on my list, but we're we're all friends here. So we're just yes. going around. Number 19 is actually Out of the Cradle from Vapor Trails. I could never get into that song. I just thought this sounds like Rush struggling to write. And as it turned out, this was the first song they wrote for Vapor Trails. And they said, we need to take a break here because we're not feeling the magic. And then they kind of took a, a few weeks off and then they came back, but they kept this song on the on the record. And I just thought it lyrically, it's it's okay. I love that one lyric that he has in there, uh, that Neil puts in there. It's a smile on the edge of sadness. 
But that, that was really, you know, really summed up kind of what he was going through at the time. Number 18 is Countdown. I don't think it's any of our favorites at this point. Uh, right. Number 17 and Countdown, for a lot of the same reasons that I've heard on your podcast, it's just, it's, it's not a song that really feels like, like Signals is a pretty strong album, but this album Closer doesn't feel very epic in a way. I know it's supposed to be they're in awe of the, seeing the space shuttle take off and they've got astronaut chatter on there and it's supposed to really sweeten it up. But I just, it feels almost dated, you know, cause it is, but I mean, it just feels yeah. like, well, uh, uh, number 17 is high water from hold your fire. Mm. I just felt like it was like, eh, that's all right. Number 16, everyday glory. And then number 15 might really tick off some people in the end from fly by night. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. I like it, but I like others better. Okay. Understood. Steve, you're back on on deck with uh, your second block. All right. Well, you pissed some people off. This is going (laughs) to really piss some people off because my number 14 (laughs) is Working Man. I love Working Man. I do. I love it. But I love 13 other Rush album enders better. That's all there (laughs) is to it. Okay. (laughs) Number 13 is High Water from Hold Your Fire. I think that song is fantastic, and it gets lost because it comes after Tai Shan. We talked about this, Jer, on the podcast. People tune out yep. after Tai Shan, and they forget about High Water. It's it's an amazing song. Neil's drums are incredible, and that's my number 13. Out of the Cradle comes in at number 12 for me from Vapor Trails. Mm-hmm. I think it's an underrated song. And after we talked about Vapor Trails, I had a bigger appreciation for this song. It comes in at number 12 for me. From Power Windows, I've got Mystic Rhythms at number 11, another amazing song. All, all the rest of the songs on my list are, are great. And this is a perfect ender for Power Windows for me. And number 10 is from 2112. It is Something for Nothing. Yeah. Another amazing song, perfect ending to a perfect record. And a perfect podcast. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to be the fanboy from start to finish on this thing. So get used to it, guys. All right, All right Jerry, go ahead. So at 14, I have We Hold On from Snakes and Arrows. Mm-hmm. I love Snakes and Arrows. I just, for some reason, the last one really doesn't, doesn't really fit for me on the album. And believe it or not, Steve, number 13 for me is Working Man. Okay. Wow. Because for me, the first album is not for me a great Rush album. It's a it's a good album. Just for me, it's not a great Rush album. If that makes any sense. And even though Working Man is as hard rock and as you could possibly get, and it fits the album very well, it's just not one of my go to songs. Believe it or not, to listen to. I agree with you. Number twelve, I have the Fountain of Lamneth, only because it's twenty minutes long. I love listening to the Fountain of Lamneth, but it's not the kind of thing you like, oh, let me listen to the Fountain of Lamneth. Do you know what I mean? It's not just one of those songs you put on and just listen to like a regular song because it's so bizarre and so long that as a final song on an album, maybe it doesn't work as well as a shorter song would have. Right. Number 11 is Cygnus X1 from Farewell to Kings. Probably again because it's so weird and it has to be on the end of the album because it's the lead into the next album. But as a way to end an album, it's about as bizarre fever dream as you could possibly put on an album. <laughs> right. And then number 10, I have In the End. And here's from In the End 
from here on down, this is where it got hard for me. It did, yeah. Because every every song from here on in is a great song, and it's just shades that differentiate them. And I just put in the end there. Fly by Night is a great album, but it's also a very transitional album. It has some weak spots in it. And in the end is trying to say something, I think, uh, that they have said better in later songs. Okay. I'm going to take a stab at uh, my block two and hope that uh, you guys will still be here on the other end of my list. (laughs) It starts number 14 with something for nothing. Now, the reason why I put it there is because the 2112, and, and actually the fact that it's number 14 might mean I will be sleeping on the couch tonight because I think it's one of my <laughs> wife's favorite songs from Rush. I just felt like 2112 was such an epic and the songs on side two, for lack of a better way of phrasing it, were good, but not as great as 2112. And so when I got to something <laughs> for nothing, I just felt like it was good, but not great. And so it, it fell in, in my block to at number 14. Number 13 is The Fountain of Lamnath. So like you, Jerry, it's not one of those songs that you go, hey, you know what I want to listen to? The Fountain of Lamnath. <laughs> it just doesn't. It's like, doesn't what, am I, what am I in the mood for? The Fountain yeah. of Lamnath. For the longest time, that Didax and Narpets, is that what it is? The, yeah, Didax and Narpets, yep. Yeah. I thought at the end where they were saying, listen, I thought he was saying return. Just, just, you know, we all hear misheard lyrics, but this one, they didn't print the lyrics on the of that part in the album. And so I never knew what they were really saying because it's it's got the guitar and, and Getty kind of screaming. And, and then at the end, I thought, I think it's Neil who says, you know, listen with Getty on the other side of the speaker. And I, and I thought, it's listen? I thought he was saying return. (laughs) (laughs) Number 12 is You Bet Your Life from Roll the Bones. Now it's higher on my list, I would guess, because at the time I was I was doing my undergraduate and reading a lot of postmodern philosophy and political theory. And I just like the fact that the chorus was this whole sort of robotic litany of labels. And when I was reading a lot about postmodernism and how sort of it's this pastiche of things and it's not sort of unified, but it's perspectives that uh, I thought, wow, I wonder if Pierre's uh, reading a lot of postmodern stuff and this is why he's just like trying to make sense of it. It's like the big spinning wheel of the you bet your life and all of it is, you know, running dog revisionists, Hindu, Muslim, Catholic, creation, evolutionists. And it's it's these wheels on wheels of spinning of labels and and they don't really – they all come from different perspectives, but there's no sort of unified whole that he was hoping for, like in Cygnus X1 book two. Um, Available Light comes in at number 11. Steve, I know that's one of your favorites. Yes. Uh, but uh, I had to put it somewhere, and it ended up on, on number 11. And then number 10 is Between the Wheels. Got a little story about Between the Wheels. On the R30 tour, I won front row tickets to see Rush through their website, because I guessed what the first song of the second set was going to be. So they awarded oh. me two free tickets. So oh, wow. I had already had tickets and they were a, little far, a lot farther back, but, and I gave it to another friend, but me and my best friend, Matt went and we were just grooving along and between the wheels comes on. And I got to say that at that time, when 
Grace Under Pressure came out, I was more into like Echo and the Bunny Man and that sort of that alternative rock that was very popular at the time. And uh, well, amongst a certain niche of people was very popular at the time. So I didn't listen to Grace Under Pressure that much to the point that I recognized the song. So I'm in front of Getty Lee. And he says, and we're going to go back to the vault on this one. This one's from Grace Under Pressure. And they start on, and my friend Matt, who's, he likes Rush, but he's not like a fanatic like me. He turns and he goes, Teddy, what song is this? And I said, <laughs> <laughs> he said I don't know. <laughs> oh, man. And, and for the for the whole concert, I was singing along and dancing along. And I looked up at Getty and he looked down at me and, and I swear to God, there was this look of disappointment coming from him. Like, <laughs> you don't know the song and you're in the front fucking row of this show? Come on, man. So <laughs> there's my between the wheels story <laughs> as That's we close awesome. out that block. Very cool. Up at bat, Mr. Steve. All right. This is, uh, we're getting deep into the top 10 now, right? Number nine for me is from Fly By Night. It is in the end. This song is, for me, just amazing. They do the quiet, loud thing that's become so popular now. Mm -hmm. Rush started it out, right? Within the end, didn't they? Between the Wheels comes in at number eight for me from Grace Under Pressure. Rush playing it live really solidified it for me as one of my favorites. We got to see them do it maybe three or four times, right, Jaron? It was just incredible live and a great way to end a great record. Number seven for me is The Fountain of Lamneth. And I'm going to say the reason that Jerry did, because it's 20 minutes long. Why not? (laughs) Why not pick a 20 minute long song for my top 10? Caress of Steel is so underrated. Just a great record. I mean, I know Rush themselves don't like the record, but Mm -hmm. the fans do and I do. And I picked that as my number seven. And for the same reason, Jerry had this down on his list. I had it up on my list. It's so weird. It's so great. It's so heavy. Cygnus X1 book one Mm -hmm. is number six for me. Maybe one of the craziest songs Rush ever did. And another great album ender. This one on Permanent Waves. I pick Natural Science for my number five. Nice. And that's amazing because that means four songs are even better than Natural Science. How's that possible? (laughs) (laughs) All right, Jerry, let's see what the deck will shuffle this time. For nine and eight, they could be switched. I have High Water from Hold Your Fire and Mystic Rhythms from Power Windows. I just love both of those albums because that was my intro to Mm -hmm. Rush. Number seven is Something for Nothing, our eponymous Something for Nothing, I suppose, from 2112. Number six is Vital Signs from Moving Pictures. Um, I wish I could put it high. This tells you the strength of the Rush catalog is that Vital Signs is number six. <laughs> yeah, really. Because and moving moving pictures is such a fantastic album, and Vital Signs is such a window into what was to come for them. It was really in a kind of an out there song to put on that mm-hmm. album. Um, and number five is Between the Wheels, because Grace Under Pressure is about as depressing an album as you could possibly <laughs> get, and Between the Wheels is even more depressing than that. It's a pretty dark song rabbits going underneath driving oh it's 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 oh it's a downer but it's a great way to end that album you couldn't end that album on an on an upbeat you really had to dig the hole even deeper so 
my estimation of that song has gone up from when I didn't know it <laughs> on the R30 tour <laughs> to, to listening to it quite a bit now. And I, I put this entire, well, all the songs on a playlist and I've been listening to it for a few days. And when it comes on, I, I thought maybe I should rank it a little higher. Cause I was, I was thinking about where am I going to place this and well, you know, where it ended up, but it would have been down in my first block initially. But when I started listening to this playlist more, I thought it's actually a pretty good song, even though you're right, Jerry, it's a, it's a downer, even like the beginning that. Yeah. I was like, man, okay. It's like, oh, yeah, it's boy. like call 911 already with, this, <laughs> with these keyboards. So my number nine is Mystic Rhythms. Number eight is Cygnus X1. And for similar reasons, it's one of the weirdest Rush songs out there. I mean, it's it ends with Getty with this blood curdling, you know, every nervous <laughs> torn apart. It's like, oh God. And that's it. Then you hear the guitar, bring, bring. It's like, now what's gonna happen? Oh, you gotta wait for the next album, kids. Uh, Carve Away the Stone and We Hold On come in number seven and six. I know that you guys don't really feel like those are strong songs, but for some reason, I do. I really like them when they come on. And so when I listen to, say, Tess for Echo or Stakes and Arrows, I always turn it up on those songs. I like, I just like them. And We Hold On, it has some fun, like little guitar bits that Alex does before his lead break. It's got a nice galloping rhythm. And I do like, for some reason, the lyric, I can't remember what preceded it, but it's, it's something about measured out in coffee breaks. The routine right. of your working day or your career, where you're feeling stuck goes, when that, when that album came out, I kind of felt stuck in my career at that time. So every time that song would come on, I thought, that's kind of how I feel. I think we've all felt right. that way at some point. And then number five is Vital Signs a real strong album closer. And it was just to put a pun in there. It signaled what was to come next, as as next <laughs> right. uh, album. So yeah, those, so those are my number nine through five. And now, now we're in the home stretch. We're, we're almost there kids. Indeed. Go ahead, Steve. All right. You want my four, three, two. Is that what we're going to do here? Uh, four, three, two. And we'll do round Robin on number one. Okay. Number four for me is La Via Strangiato. And the only reason it's not number one is I didn't feel like this had to be the last song on the record. It could have been anywhere on the record and it would have been incredible. So that's why I didn't pick it higher, mm -hmm. but it's, you know, it's an epic song. Rush fans all over the world. If you do a top list of Rush songs, La Via Strangiato always lands at number one. And for good reason. It's it's incredible. It's just a, a magnificent feat. I don't know how they played it live without screwing it up. I really don't know. <laughs> it was true. And night after night, too. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Now, when I got to my top three, I thought to myself, 
you know, Jared, I don't know if you remember this, but we did our top three album enders on episode 46 of our podcast with John Petuto. And I thought, I remember well, doing it. Right. But I didn't remember what songs I picked. So I thought I should check it out and see what songs I picked and maybe pick those same three songs. So that's exactly what I did. I listened and oh. I said, you know what? I agree with that guy. He's smart. I'm going to pick these <laughs> well, let me ask you this, songs. Steve. Did you write down what I picked? Because I did not listen to that episode, so I don't know what I picked. I did not write down. I just skipped through and listened to myself oh. talk about my picks. Yeah, of course. Because <laughs> I don't want to listen to you. Come on. <laughs> I don't want to listen to me either. Fifth grade. So number three is from Presto, and it's an epic ending to, I think, an underrated record available light the piano is amazing getty's vocals are better than at any point in russia's career i think on this song and for me it had to be number three number two is the final song on in my opinion the greatest rush album of all time moving pictures as you said ted vital signs is a great jumping off point to the next record which makes it a perfect album ender for moving pictures. And that is my number two. Vital signs. Okay. All right, Jerry. Tension's building. It is, right? Number four, I'm going with Available Light. Wow. Because you guys are really into that song. Bravo. Yeah. We, right? We're, we're, we have almost the same list. Because it, like Steve said, it's got the piano. It's an unusual Rush song. In the same way that Cygnus X1 is like the craziest Rush song, mm -hmm. I think that Available Light is the probably the most unique Rush song. Just because it's it's like a ballad. It's such a beautiful song. It starts out with the piano. It's really just a, a, a wonderful song. It just sits It just sits perfectly in that. If they put it anyplace else on that album, it wouldn't have worked as well. Number three is Natural Science, just because it is kooky. It's the it's one of the kookiest ones. It's not as kooky probably as Cygnus X1, no, but it's definitely it's... as ambitious as any Rush song, especially lyrically, can be because it encompasses so much. And number two for me is La Villa Strangiato. Nice. Because that is, even though it's how nine minutes long or ten minutes long or whatever, I just listen to it a lot. Because it's such a great, it's such a fun song to listen to. Mm -hmm. And Alex is, I would say he's at the top of his game, but I don't, he's always been at the top of his game. I think it's the perfect way to end Hemispheres because Hemispheres isn't an, an odd album to begin with. And La Villa Strangiato is basically based on Alex's nightmares. And it kind of sounds like it. So I love it. Very complex nightmares, wouldn't you say? I mean, it's just very, like it's very, all over the map. Yeah. It is. So so my number four is Working Man. I, I moved it up very high. I know that that first album, they had trouble with the lyrics because it fell to Getty to write them sort of on the spot. But even with that, they came up with a pretty strong album closer. It did 
in a way showed that they were wanting to stretch out. You know, there wasn't so much of that progressive rock stuff, but it wasn't as bluesy of a song and it built up and it had a lot of changes and it's, well, it's a classic, but it's still up there for me. Uh, number three is La Villa Strangiato for all the reasons you, Jerry, and you, Steve, had said to add to something that I don't think gets talked about a lot, but there are some jazz flourishes on that yeah. song that I don't think mm-hmm. Rush has ever done again. Like Getty's like really jamming on the bass and I'm all like, that's almost jazzy. And I don't think he's really, maybe he does at home, you know, I don't know. He says he's listening <laughs> to a lot of jazz now, but so maybe he's playing along. It's a complicated song. It was really hard for them to record. And like you guys, it's just amazing that they can play that song or they could play that song night after night on a tour. And number two is Natural Science. And Natural Science is a song that I don't grow tired of. I think lyrically it is very complex. It does take the listener on a real journey. There's a lot of change-ups in musical styles throughout it. And it really feels like an amazing close, I think, is an amazing album. Which leads us to our number one, which I'm going to guess, since it hasn't been mentioned, all our number ones are the same. Yes, I think it doesn't take a, a rocket scientist to figure this out. I wasn't good at math earlier in the episode, but apparently I had a flash of something, you know, <laughs> it came to me. So I think we can probably safely say, and maybe Steve, why don't you just say it? You want me what? to say that you- The Garden is the number one Rush album ender, Rush career ender song that has ever been written. It's just amazing. Yep. Perfect ending to a career, perfect ending to a perfect album has to be number one. I feel the same way. In this one of many possible worlds, all for the best, or some bizarre test. It is what it is, and whatever. Time is still the infinite jet. Cells take away the watchmaker keeps to his keys. The hours tick away, they tick away. And I even think that Getty, Alex, and probably Neil felt that this was one of their strongest songs that they had written. I I know that during the guitar solo and that um, keyboard breakdown with the piano. When they finished recording it, they said people were kind of crying. There were some tears that were being shed there because it was that emotional. And Getty had said that he thought that the solo that Alex came up with on on the garden was his favorite out of all of them that he's ever done. I thought, it's a lot of solos, man. And that's your favorite. That's it, it is. It's very soaring and it's very emotional. It's a very emotional song. It was a lovely capstone to an album that I think in many ways was trying to mirror Neil Peart's life in some way, you know, that he grew up in this sort of conservative community. You know, he could have been the assistant's parts director at his dad's auto parts store if he wanted to and lived a very Mm -hmm. conservative life of getting married, having kids, raising those kids and staying exactly where you are because 
I'm going to guess St. Catharines, Ontario, not a lot changes there. He wanted adventure and he certainly got it and kept seeking it. I think that that's why a lot of people love the lyrics of Purit, because even though he himself was a private man, he expressed himself in his books and in his lyrics in a very open way. Like you could say, yeah, that's you. I can see that right. you're writing about yourself or some experience, even though you probably say, oh, it's a metaphor for this or that. But no, he's writing very, very personally in, so, in many ways. And I guess that's part of what makes Rush so special. The other two parts are, of course, Alex and Getty, who just write some incredible music. And with that, gentlemen, I want to thank you for being on the podcast. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. I know that as I said at the opener, that we've we've had some scheduling conflicts, but I'm glad glad we were able to overcome that hurdle and that you were able to, to come on my podcast as you were so nice to invite me on yours back in the day. Thanks so much, Dad. We really appreciate you inviting us and uh, we hope to come back someday. Oh, I'd love to have you back anytime, guys. It's great to uh, speak into a microphone again, actually. I kind of miss it, Steve. I miss it. Yeah, I do too. That may be a signal, kids, that there may be a one-off something for nothing episode <laughs> coming. Maybe, maybe even a two-off, Ted. Maybe a two-off. <laughs> we don't know. If you haven't checked out Steve and Jerry's podcast, it is something for nothing available, I would guess, on most platforms like Apple and Spotify, Amazon, yep. and you're probably on Google Podcasts and Odyssey and iHeart and all of that. So wherever you yep. get your podcasts, listen to something for nothing. They got 175 episodes. There's plenty and there's lots of twists and turns and cool guests that come on. Well worth your time. So subscribe. Once you finish the episodes, maybe Jaron and Steve will do a couple two-offs, maybe three-offs. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> well, Planet LP listeners, thank you so much for listening and talk to you soon.